It's time for Run, Bandy, Run. An Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. Okay, everyone. Here we go. Last looks. Camera one. Yes? Camera one. And we're ready. We're going in five, four, three, two. So we all know what a talk show set looks like, but Oprah's in Chicago is iconic, particularly in the 1990s. Picture the audience. It's mostly women, teased bangs, and lots of pastel. They're all arrayed around an extremely large center platform on which there are two gray chairs. Oprah's in one of them with that all-knowing look on her face. She's got a very special guest on today's show. You're already familiar with the woman who's sitting next to me. She is Laurie Bimbenek, the real-life Bambi, who was portrayed in last night's NBC miniseries that also continues tonight. The camera pans to Laurie. She's the picture of early 90s elegance. Navy blue floral dress with big shoulder pads. Her eyes are wide set, self-possessed, and her back is ramrod straight. You escape through an eight-inch... Um, opening yeah, in the was... windowsill. And I, you know what? I went home and I got that's my tape measure true. and I measured. No, that's not true. That, that's a lie that the prison told so that they wouldn't look so stupid. It was a regular window. Lori has her lines down. She knows exactly how to get the laugh, how to play the room. It's a new role for her. The gracious celebrity on the hot seat. And she's a natural. And that was my window of opportunity. Excuse the pun. So to speak. This is Run, Bambi, Run, an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis, and this is episode eight. At first, when Lori got out of Techita, she lived in a Milwaukee high-rise by the lake. She dated a city council member. She'd crossed over from Lori the cop to Lori the convict to now Lori the celebrity. Now that all of America was so convinced that she wasn't an enemy of the state, it was totally cool to yuck it up with her, like Oprah had, even though Lori was still technically a second-degree murderer. As Oprah mentioned a minute ago, Lori even had her turn on the small screen. NBC made a miniseries about her life, and 80s hotshot Tatum O'Neill played Lori. Imagine being charged with first-degree murder. This is crazy! Imagine your own husband turning against you. Imagine facing life in prison without possibility of parole. What would you do? Lori was back in the tabloids, but now it wasn't about her guilt. Here's Meg Kissinger, the journalist who talked about Chief Harold Breyer way earlier in our series, talking about how his men wore Gestapo boots. Meg wrote about Lori in the 90s in her gossip column. It was just little bite-sized tidbits of news that people could easily digest. And my charge was to write it with a wink and a whisper. And that's what I did. But she was very upset that I would reference her as convicted killer Laurentia Bambanek, which, in hindsight, that was very mean of me. Indeed, it was factual. A sort of unpleasant side of Lori came out. I think from the media's perspective, they loved her because she was this little vixen, but they were also annoyed with her. And she played the media. She tried to pull strings. She tried to manipulate 
And, you know, there were there was a lot about her that was off-putting. Everybody hung on the fact that she accepted that plea. Why would you accept a plea if you didn't do it? Chris Radish. She flew into notoriety after prison with giddiness. And she was so recognizable. One time I went with her to a mall in Milwaukee, and it was just like, oh, my God, can I have your autograph? Can I have your autograph? And I sensed from her that she was really enjoying it, which is fine because it was certainly better than being in prison. But I also had a talk with her that day, and I said, Lori, so many people have done so much for you. Wouldn't it be really cool if you, like, rented a church hall or a— the VFW hall and had like a thank you party and she just couldn't go there. She just couldn't go there. And I, I found that a little heartbreaking. Lori became addicted to the limelight. Her sisters, who had been quiet her whole life, who she didn't have much of a relationship with, they came out and said that she was troubled. They felt that she hadn't killed Christine, but there was something off about her. She'd been the center of attention as a kid, almost an only child. And she never really grew up. One of her lawyers from the time also said to me that he felt like Lori was a different woman every time he saw her. That she didn't know who she was anymore. And she was trying on all these different masks. Which might have had something to do with Lori drinking too much, at the very least. I'm Marty Burns-Wolf, and I worked as the co-anchor on the 6 and 10 o'clock news at Channel 12 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Marty wanted Lori to sit for an interview. She did not want to do an interview with me. And I said, I understood. But I wanted to know from her why. And she said she was tired of being the focus of everyone's imagination. I just decided not to pursue it. But I told her that if she wanted to be friends and she wanted to have somebody to talk to, we could do that whenever the occasion arose. And how did she react to that? She was stunned by it. She, I don't think she had any friends in television. And one night she could not drive and she could not talk to me because she couldn't remember where she lived. And she was stumbling over the words like that. I took her home with me and put her to bed in my bedroom. And I went to sleep in the guest bedroom and wondered whether I should lock the door. (laughs) And the next morning when I got up, she was gone and left me a little note that said, I love your cat. I think she's hungry. In 1996, on a routine parole visit, Lori was arrested for the possession of marijuana and cocaine. She might have been using, but as her lawyer Sheldon Zenner said to me last episode, the Milwaukee cops also might have been looking for a way to trip her up. Not much came of the charges, though. Dean Strang, who represented her in court, was pleased to find that the government wanted to make it go away. An assistant attorney general handled it. He was looking for a way not to turn this into World War III or more of a circus than it already was. One development did come of this chain of events. At a hearing, Lori asked to have her parole transferred. Her parents had moved to the Pacific Northwest, and she said she wanted to be near them. I got a phone call saying that she was leaving, and I said, good, you need to be someplace other than Milwaukee. I was really hoping that she'd turn it around and live out a quiet life, but I think there were demons inside of her that would not let her go. Lori settled in Vancouver, Washington. But as most convicts find out, 
returning to normalcy was a challenge. Lori was referred by her state probation officer and she needed help with employment. No one would hire her. Jackie Parker, who's worked with ex-offenders for 30 years, was Lori's counselor. When she got out, she was used to being the speaker on a, you know, talk show. She was, in a strange, non-rewarding way, a center of attention. And when she had to go to regular work, that's not how that that was going to play out. She had missed the whole computer age. And I said, well, I have a friend who works at a community college in graphic arts. Maybe she can see if they need anybody. And I think they were considering it, but the felony, the um, the violent conviction, they couldn't they couldn't risk having her on campus with folks under eighteen. Lori eventually got a job as staff support for an organization helping women at risk. It gave her a sense of purpose to be able to mentor other women, but she still wanted to be exonerated. Part of the reason she'd play the media the way that Meg Kissinger mentioned, trying to get journalists to cover her, is that they pretty much always took her side. And she needed that, both emotionally, to feel okay in the world, and also because she needed publicity to raise awareness and money to keep fighting her case. In 2001, there was a new law in Wisconsin. It said the convicts who claimed they were innocent could apply for DNA testing. Lori sensed a brand new path to exoneration. Because in her case, there were plenty of tangible objects from 1981 to test. There was the blue bandana that had been used to gag Christine, a t-shirt, a comforter, a fitted sheet from the bed. Not to mention Fred's confusing stash of on and off duty guns. The lab was even going to test Hornberger's DNA. We also focused on Fred Hornberger, who seemed to us to have been much more likely to have been the person who committed this murder than anybody else. Despite being dead, Hornberger was still the main suspect in a lot of people's minds. And Milwaukee had tissue from his autopsy. But when it came time for the DNA analysis, Lori didn't trust the Milwaukee lab. Fox guarding the hen house and all. So she chose a company in Tennessee, and Wisconsin wasn't going to pay for that. In order to raise money for the Tennessee test, she made plans to go on TV again. Let's do it. This is going to be a changing day in your life. In 2002, Dr. Phil said that he'd contribute $20,000 for DNA testing in her case. Well, now, we're going to open that can. We're going to eat the whole thing. All she had to do was wait and then open the proverbial envelope with the results on Dr. Phil's show in front of a live studio audience. When she got to L.A., Dr. Phil put her up in a little apartment while she killed time before her appearance. They wanted to keep her sequestered, like she was on an important jury or something, to keep the test results secret. She says she didn't have a phone, a radio, or a TV set. She felt totally isolated, almost incarcerated. And she freaked out. Jackie Parker. She was having flashbacks, and she had to do something. And I think that's the same process that probably went on with her when she escaped from prison. Mm-hmm. that she had to do something because they weren't going to let her go. They weren't going to believe her. 
So she's going to shake something up enough to make something happen. So she decided to escape. Lori figured she'd made it out of a state penitentiary, so she could definitely break out of a walk-up in Marina Del Rey. She tied her bedsheets together, climbed out the window, and promptly fell straight to the ground. When she hit the concrete, she cracked two major bones and severed an artery in her right foot. After her foot developed an infection, there was nothing doctors could do. It was the worst-case scenario. They amputated her foot, which ended up to be part of her leg. Lori's lawyer, Mary Wehrer, was quoted blaming the jump on PTSD from years of incarceration and months of solitary confinement in the Wisconsin prison system. Lori was claustrophobic, and she panicked. Joanne, her friend from grade school. I'm not in her head. I have been afraid to a point where I did dumb things, but not jump out of the window. <laughs> the fear has to be pretty damn bad. And, and I hope you or anyone never has to feel that kind of fear. The executive producer of the Dr. Phil show was less sympathetic, saying it is unfortunate that she hurt her leg during an apparent prank when she left her room through a window rather than using the front door. Lori's appearance was canceled, and I am sure you will not be surprised to hear there was a big legal imbroglio after all this. Lori later said that she received an annuity. That's basically what she lived on, the settlement and her disability payments. Jackie Parker. The leg was one of those things. She just, she didn't care if you saw her crawling around on the floor. She was going to get to where she was going. After all that, the DNA results turned out to be a mixed bag. None of the DNA that was collected matched Lori's, which was good for her claims. But there was always a chance that she was there and her DNA didn't transfer over, which happens all the time. In terms of Hornberger's DNA, it wasn't there either. None of it. So the results didn't show that either one of them were there that night. But they couldn't prove conclusively that they weren't there either. Now, two types of male DNA were found on Christine Sheets. One of them was her son's, and the other one was from an unknown contributor. And there was DNA from a male on a vaginal swab collected from Christine. Prosecutors argued this DNA wasn't necessarily semen. It was a Y chromosome. It could have come from a man contaminating the sample when handling evidence after the murder. But there was someone who thought very differently. Elaine Samuels, the very outspoken medical examiner. The medical examiner isn't called until something like an hour and a half. Now, Dr. Samuels is the one who said in the last episode that there weren't any blonde hairs when she examined Christine's body. She believed the hairs that connected Lori to the crime were placed in an envelope by the MPD as evidence later. It would have been very easy for someone to take a blonde hair off Lorencia's hairbrush put it on the bandana, the blonde hairs have to have been planted. But she was roundly dismissed by the state. Not only that, she had been pushed out of office. In fact, prosecutors seriously said at one point, no one cares what Elaine Samuels has to say. But now she had some serious questions about the vaginal swab showing male DNA. The sexual assault aspect of this was never even brought up or thought about. And then later, 
when people started talking about it, I'm like, oh my God, that was also something that should have been, they should have cross-referenced and everything, and that wasn't done either. So just one more tick on the list of reasons why this is just so shoddy. If Elaine Samuels is right, if the murder was also a sexual assault by a man, that changes everything. Then Lori is 100% definitively not guilty. It would be an extraordinary irony if Lori, a woman who persisted in a man's world, was ultimately exonerated by only having X chromosomes. Of course, I can't talk to Elaine Samuels because she is also deceased. When does a story become less fact and more myth? It happens when the circle of people close to it die. It's not just their secrets that die with them. It's everything. Their experience and perspective, too. That's when things start to get blurry. And as I've mentioned here and there, a lot of characters in this case are, sadly, no longer with us. Christine Schultz, obviously. Christine's boyfriend, Stu Honick. Mr. USA, Pitbull Ira Robbins, Fred Hornberger, all gone. The Italian stallion was still alive when I first contacted him, but then he passed away from lung cancer. For months, I thought Judy Zess might be alive. On her Facebook page, she wrote that she was a proud cheesehead who was also working for Jesus and a greater cause. She had also posted a picture of the French flag. Maybe she really did speak French. I happened to be in Austin this spring, so I stopped by her brother's house. Next one. Next one down. Oh, it's, it's the next one down. Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, my name is Vanessa Gregoriatis. I know this is very weird, but I tried to call you... Judy's brother said that Judy passed away in 2018. He also said he believed Lori killed Christine. Now, Fred, unlike the rest, was alive and thriving. Pictures of him now on the internet showed him in biking clothes, a medal on a blue lanyard slung around his neck. He has the same clear blue eyes and tight smile from shots of him in the 80s as a cop. Here he is giving an interview to a local paper about cycling. Now we've got a connecting loop that's about 40 miles, which is about what we train. You can take a left and go all the way down to uh, Gulf Harbor and then loop back up and go back up Old Burn Store to the uh, bird sanctuary and back down again. It's going to be awesome. Fred has always said that he had no part in the murder, even telling People magazine at one point that he had nothing to do with it directly or indirectly. He said she knows how she did it and she knows why she did it. He added, justice was done. As far as the rest of the retired Milwaukee cops are concerned, I'm sure you realize by this point that they stonewalled us. Someone told me that anytime you bring up Lori's name with them, it's like the Mennonites. They'll just turn their backs on you. It's called a shunning. We did talk to a couple cops off mic, and their message was, it was not our finest hour. To get an outside opinion on Lori's case, we reached out to someone else. He's a detective on one of the great unsolved cases in America. Who killed Biggie and Tupac? My name is Greg Kading. I'm a retired Los Angeles Police Department homicide investigator. I started in uh, 1985 and retired in 2010. 
So we asked like a dozen or more retired cops from Milwaukee to talk to us about this case, and they all turned down our requests. Why? It's embarrassing. There's nothing you're going to do to change the facts of history. And you can't come in here without looking like an idiot and try to justify what happened in this case. So it's better just to stay away from it as opposed to be the guy that, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to talk about this if I had any um, involvement in it. Um, But why not just own up to it? I mean, enough time has passed, you know. Um, Everybody's different. All these individuals make their own decisions for their own reasons. I'm just saying from, for me, um, I take back what I just said. I probably would say, hey, a lot of times past, um, this was an embarrassment, but um, it's something that needs to be talked about. Uh, we should all be learning from these issues and these mistakes. This is how law enforcement progresses, um, is, to, is to own up to it. But no one ever did. Look, The system looks bad here. And even if Judy Zess planting a freaking wig was the only factor, no reasonable person can argue that Lori got a fair trial. But that still doesn't prove that she had nothing to do with the murder. I talked about this last episode. They say the simplest answer is usually the right one. So what if the prosecutors were right and Lori just did it? I'm not saying she ran over there and killed Christine for the house, which just seems ridiculous. I'm just saying maybe she was there, or in on it, as a lookout, or it was a mistake, or something else. That theory is a little bit hard for me to swallow because I just can't see Bambi staying silent about it for her entire life. Obviously, people do crazy, irrational shit at times. She fought her case as an innocent person from the moment she had handcuffs put on her. And when she realized that she had lost her case the best thing she could have done for herself was to then have full disclosure and say, okay, I've lost. Here's what really happened. I'm already going to do you know, a long prison term, but I'm not going to do it alone. This is something that several people mentioned to me, like Linda Reeves, her friend from the police academy. Anytime anybody professed to, to be innocent for that period of time, that long, and try to correct and write their name, I don't, I don't believe she did it. You just don't fight this hard if you're guilty, is what they're saying. And also, at some point, even if it's just to your sister, you confess. And you probably don't beg for DNA testing if you think it might indict you. And so for me, in the final analysis, it's about character. And I'm talking not only about what I believe Lori would have said, but who she was. There's nothing about Lori's character from the minute that I learned about her, all through reading all those letters that Chris Radish had stored in her garage for 40 years, that makes me think that Lori is a killer. And she was also way too smart to have committed this crime. But that doesn't mean she was smart enough to know when to let go. In 2006, living with one leg, Lori sued everyone she could under a civil statute saying that she was deprived of her rights. She sued Monty Lutz at the crime lab, a few policemen who worked on the case, the prosecutors, and Fred. But it didn't stick. She had reached the end of the line. Even before this, the press, once denigrated by prosecutors as a bunch of rented mules following her around, were starting to lose interest. They got exasperated. And then, even worse, they got bored. 
A newspaper columnist dismissed her by saying, the audience for the Babetic Circus has drifted away like bikers at an Elton John show. So, a moment ago, when I talked about all the people in this story who have passed away, I didn't mention Lori. But as you know, she's gone too. When she was 52 years old, Lori's body started to deteriorate. It had attracted so many eyes over a lifetime. It had given her opportunities. Like all pretty people, it had probably given her a lift. All those psychological studies show that beauty makes people like you more. But because of the circumstances she was in, fighting a male-dominated police force, being accused of murder, losing her case over the assumption that she was a femme fatale, Her beautiful body was also like a time bomb strapped to her mind, to her soul. And now it was giving out on her. I think she got addicted to the morphine, and then I think that led to other addictions. And I I don't know how she addressed all those issues, those mental health issues that, that she had from her years in prison. Lori developed hepatitis C and had liver failure. Looking tired and weak, a shell of herself, really, she gave one last interview to a reporter. And in it, she recapped the highlights of her well-worn story. The cameras trained on her, but she sort of crumpled in her chair. The window was just open. I was down in the laundry, doing my laundry, and I noticed it was like my window of opportunity. (laughs) I climbed out the window, I ran through the woods, and got over the fence. Yeah, this part we know. But why did she keep fighting, even so long after she was free? My dad's dying wish was to have the family name cleared. I miss him so much. I really do. The interviewer then asks her how she feels about her life. On a one to ten scale, where do you rate your life? Two. Two. Two out of ten. When I look at that last video of her, I can't, I can't really look at it. I look away because I just break down sobbing. I see this woman who was once incredibly talented and beautiful, nothing but a shell of sobbing drug addiction with, you know, half her leg gone. It's, it's just a tragedy. I think about the, the ricochet of loss from, from this murder for the loss of her life, for the loss of Christine's life, her family. Lori went into hospice care in the Pacific Northwest after this, and she began to lose consciousness. Joanne flew in to see her one last time. She was already unconscious most of the time. And I knew my mind and my heart that she knew I was there. She put these shorts on to go to school in the morning in high school and they were really cut off short, short. And her mom goes, you can't go to school with those who look like a cheap woman. So between her and I, that was always her nickname, hey, cheap woman. And I looked at her, stepped behind her bed and I said, hey, cheap woman. And she she smiled and she tried to open her eyes and she just kind of turned her head to the side. And that was one of the few last responses that anybody got from her. On November 20th, 2010, Lori died. Jackie Parker says that she left behind a small idea 
of something she wanted to have in her name. A memorial um, brick laid in the foundation walkway of the YWCA with her name on it. We asked them to put Lori Benbenek, seeker of justice, on the brick. They put Lori Benbenek, but the seeker of justice, ironically, was missing. Mary Ware, Lori's lawyer at the time, filed a pardon request with the governor of Wisconsin. Here's Dean Strang again. There's a long tradition in the United States, actually, of posthumous pardons sometimes decades or longer after a person's death, um, the idea of clearing their name and their family's reputation from whatever taint the criminal conviction had. So the governor could grant a pardon here, even though Lori's long dead. Here's Keith Finley, a lawyer who works with the Innocence Project. He says it's not impossible but it's not likely. The governor has that authority, but most governors in Wisconsin have been very reluctant to use that power to pardon on the basis of actual innocence. You know, for for the eight years that Governor Scott Walker was the governor of the state of Wisconsin, he actually shut down the pardon board and refused to consider any applications for pardons. Most governors, at least in Wisconsin, look the other way and say, uh, no, no, that's the judiciary's role. I was thinking about Lori's story and why I told it a few months ago, when I was at the library with my son. We walked over to the section with those heavy cardboard books for toddlers, and I picked out a book about Bambi. This is Bambi. I can read to you. Bambi is a curious fawn. And there's a picture of the Bambi. What does she have on her tail? A ladybug. She's, I think that's actually a butterfly. And look, there's little little rabbits singing to Bambi. Come on, I get ice cream. Okay, not a hit with my son, but in 1942, it was huge. Good morning, Bambi. Good morning, young friend. It was the fifth Walt Disney feature film. Walking already. Well, what do you know? If you watched Bambi as a kid, you probably remember that amid all the woodland creatures flouncing about, it has a very dark feeling. I mean, like all fairy tales. As a plot point, the darkness is about Bambi's mother dying, being shot by a hunter. It is man. We must go deep into the forest. The Disney movie, as it turns out, was a dramatically altered adaptation. It's based on a novel written by a Jew in 1920s Austria. And this version was definitely not a children's book. In fact, the Nazis had public book burnings of it. They thought it was a parable about the Nazis persecuting European Jews. And obviously, they didn't look too good in that equation. Lori's Bambi story can be seen as an allegory, too. A feminist telling of Icarus. And there's something about it that's narcissist, too. Or maybe it's Serpico, the famous cop whistleblower. Take your pick. Dean Strang. Her case is a mirror of the broader society, as most criminal cases are. Who we punish and how we punish them, who we believe and who we disbelieve, all of these things are mirrors of us. I think that's part of the enduring interest of Lori's case is the conflicting images of ourselves we see with 
this mirror of the very, very unusual criminal defendant. Lori was too ambitious, too sexy, too much. The world wasn't ready for her. If she'd been born in Salem, Massachusetts in the 1600s, she would have been burned alive by the time she was a teenager. As it was, she wasn't locked up until she was 23. So maybe that's progress? I'm half joking, but really, if Lori came along today, I think we'd treat her a lot differently. The press would have to. I asked Meg Kissinger about this. If Lori's case had been covered today, how do you think or hope the reporting would have been different? What would it have looked like? Well, I hope it would have been fuller and less distracted by her flamboyance. I look back on that now and I think we kind of played into the whole making her into something of a cartoon character or a one-dimensional figure. I want to think that we've evolved, that they would regard her as a human being who's up on a charge that would put her behind bars for the rest of her life. Cheap reporting, pot shots, and kind of surface treatment of human beings. I don't think anybody gains from that. When I think of Lori now, I try to think of something other than the tabloid tale. Those mismarched pinup photos or the last video where she looks so defeated. Instead, I try to focus on all the photos I've seen of the young Lorencia Bebenek. She's three years old in a slicker with a matching bonnet. She's walking on the beach in the rain. She's a little older and it's her first communion. She's wearing a white dress with a white chapel veil. At 12 years old, she stands in a doorway in a pinafore that looks like her mom sewed it. Her face is tipped to the sun, just drinking it in. She's a girl with promise, and life could have led her anywhere. Run Baby Run is an Apple original podcast produced by Campside Media. It was created and executive produced by Mark McAdam and me, Vanessa Grigoriadis. Our producers are Sam Leeds and Elizabeth Van Brocklin. Ashley Ann Krigbaum is our managing producer. Our researchers are Alex Yablon and Callie Hitchcock. And our archivist is Megan Shuve. Campside Media's executive producers are Josh Dean, Adam Hoff, Matt Scher, and myself. Special thanks to executive producer Kyle Long, Ewen Lai Trumuen, and Campside's operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aaliyah Papes, and Allison Haney. Thank you as well to Mary Wehrer, Lori's attorney and author of Last Dance, a book about Lori. And finally, thanks so much to Chris Radish, who wrote the book Run Bambi Run. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. 